Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. So the what if stage is where you really start to bring your own creativity, your imagination, and, and uh, your creative powers to bear on this issue through speculation. And it can be, what if questions can be, wild i mean they can just be you know what if we turn the whole thing upside down you know i mean oftentimes the more and the more wild they are the better i'm srini rao and this is the unmistakable creative podcast where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements built thriving businesses written best-selling books and created insanely interesting art for more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Warren, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, it's great to be here. It is absolutely my pleasure to have you here. You know, I uh, came across your work uh, by way of one of our former guests and also via your book, uh, A More Beautiful Question, which I just finished reading and uh, absolutely loved because I just felt there were so many applicable things uh, that could be, you know, implemented into to lives uh, and our businesses. So on that note, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your journey, your story, your background, and how that has led you uh, to this book and, and the conclusions that you've arrived at, or the questions actually more fittingly? Yeah, well, I mean, I've been a journalist um, my whole career. Uh, started out as a, as a newspaper reporter in Texas, uh, then started writing uh, for the New York Times and um, uh, eventually switched over to uh, magazine journalism and was writing for you know magazines like Wired and and some other publications. So I've always been a um, as a journalist I've always been a questioner. You mm-hmm. know it's, it's basically you know one of the tools of the trade, right? When you're a journalist and um, and uh, but I never really thought about it like you know the power of of questioning. I mean I definitely always worked hard on asking good questions so that I could get the best um, interviews uh, out of people. But I started to look at questioning a whole different way um, a few years ago. And it came out of a lot of studying of um, innovators and entrepreneurs and and creative thinkers. And I started to realize that um, they were really good at asking questions. And and it, it, it sort of opened up a whole new way of thinking about questions for me, because I realized that, you know, the kind of questions they were good at asking 
were not necessarily the kind of questions I was asking as a journalist, right? Mm -hmm. Which are usually, they're usually questions that are, you know, targeted at another person and designed to pull some information out of that person. And those are great. I mean, those are great kinds of questions too. But I found what these innovators were doing is they were asking really great questions just about the world around them and, and often asking themselves really powerful deep questions, and then maybe sharing those questions with other people to try to figure something out. So, you know, they would be asking, you know, why hasn't someone solved this particular problem? Or what if you came at this problem from this direction and you tried this approach? And they would be asking these kinds of questions that no one else was was really asking at the time. And that seemed to be the, the thing that would often drive them toward toward innovation Mm -hmm. so so i sort of from that i kind of developed this theory or this idea that questioning was like a starting point of innovation you know and if you could if you could find the right question you were on your way to maybe something big and something innovative and that became the the driving uh force behind the book Mm. you know i want to go back um to the beginning of this like i'd like to do with everybody's stories and you know, ask when you look back over your life, I mean, early childhood, adolescence, you know, early career, are, are there moments of significance and inflection points that, you know, you feel have, have led you to where you're at and have played an influence on your life today? I think, um, you know, for, for me, there was a, there was a, a, a real big moment for me when I kind of left the place where I lived and grew up. I, 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 I'm from New York. And I, I spent, you know, my formative years in New York and then even went to college in upstate New York. And, um, you know, I was just sort of based in, in this area. And then in my uh, right after college, in my early 20s, I, I took off and went on the road and, um, and ended up in Texas you know, just by accident. And, um, and then decided to take a job there, whatever job I could find. And, um, and it, I ended up being a newspaper reporter and, um, that was a really, uh, significant, uh, kind of turning point for me because it, I think it got me used to the idea that I could go into a totally foreign environment and just use my questioning skills and my creativity to kind of make my way there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I had a great time, you know, I, I really had a great uh, experience, you know, in a whole different culture, you know, like sort of small town Texas uh, reporting was really interesting. Uh, so I think that was, I would say that was a formative experience. It, it, it just kind of opened my eyes to a different, different way of life and a different, you know, different culture. And it, it was a big influence. Now I ended up coming back to New York mm-hmm. uh, eventually and, you know, uh, and, and sort of big media in New York. But um, but that experience was just really had left a mark on me. Huh. So let me ask you this. How did going back to New York uh, after having the small town Texas experience, you know, I, the immediate you know, movie that, or show that comes to mind for me is Friday Night Lights. And I've lived in a small Texas town, so I, I, yeah. I know it well. How did you see New York differently after coming from a small coming back to it from a small Texas town? And how did you see media differently after reporting for a small town Texas newspaper and going back to New York and getting to work on all these big publications? Yeah, I think one of the things it, 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 it sort of 
reminds you that there's a world outside of um, what you're used to seeing in in New York or or in LA. You know, right? Like there's a whole other way of looking at the world that, that, that's out there in in all these various parts of of the country. And of course, you, you get that even more when you go outside the country and you go to another country. But you uh, you know you just get that different perspective, and I think that's really important to have because I I, I feel sometimes that um, in in the worlds of journalism and entertainment can sometimes seem kind of insular, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's like all the people, sometimes it seems like they're coming from the same background and the same world. And so I think it's really important to, to get that, that, you know, that other perspective. And, uh, and the other thing that was great about it was when you go and work in small town, small town media, because it's, everything is like small and low budget, you have to learn to do everything yourself, you know, and so instead of having just one very specialized job, you kind of have to do everything. So when I was working on a small town uh, newspapers in Texas, um, I was doing everything. I wasn't just doing the reporting. I was taking my own photographs and I was going to the dark room and developing my own photographs. And I was like standing with the uh, the layout people when they were laying out the story and and helping with the layout. And it was crazy. I mean, I was doing everything mm-hmm. involved with the production of that newspaper. So, um, so, so that I think is an interesting, uh, that was an interesting experience too. It's, it's really fun to, to get that kind of hands-on um, uh, experience that you might not get when you're with New York uh, media and you're just going to have one little specialized role. Mm. Let me ask you this. Uh, you know, you seem to have come from a world of storytelling and journalism that precedes the internet. And, and you know, I've had a handful of people here who come from that world. And I'm always curious to see, uh, you know, how things have changed and how you see the world differently as a byproduct of technology uh, versus before technology was so pervasive and universal in our lives. Yeah, I think it's really, I mean, it's so different. Um, the biggest thing for me as a writer and a journalist is the way it has changed your ability to do research and access information. You know, it's just been like, it's just been such a dramatic change in the way that you can um, find out, you know, so much about a subject so quickly now. Mm-hmm. And um, it, that used to be part of the process that you would have to factor in a lot of time for, you know, research for a story to me back in the old days meant, you know, you had to budget time to like go to the library, you know, and, and spend hours, you know, like wading through information. Um, and even, it was even harder in those days to figure out how you were going to get someone's contact info or their phone number, you know? And so you spent a lot of time on, on that kind of stuff. And, um, and now, you know, you can do all of that stuff so quickly that um, I think it's it's a tremendous uh, uh, luxury mm. that you have now as a, as a journalist, as a writer, as a creative person of any type. You have this um, ability to just gather so much information from so many sources and so many points of view. It's all there, basically at your fingertips, and you can do it quickly. And then, you know, theoretically, that leaves you more time for the creative part of, you know, writing or 
putting things together or structuring your art, your stories. Um, so it's, I think it's, it's a huge plus, you know, for the most part. Mm. Um, I guess if there's a negative to it, it's that, um, you know, sometimes having all that information so readily available causes people to get a little bit lazy in a way, you know, they kind of, they will kind of do the, the Google searches and the, and the, and the first round of kind of looking at what's out there and easily available on the internet. And then they may feel, okay, I've done my research, you know, and, um, and of course that, that can be a real trap, uh, because, you know, obviously, you, you know, the stuff that you're getting and especially the stuff you're getting in your initial searches, uh, may not be the, uh, the best information. It may not be the most reliable and, you know, it may give you a false, a false view of the reality. So I think, um, nowadays it's almost like you have to try to strike a balance between you know using that so much of that new information that's available to you and doing still doing a little bit of old-fashioned you know kind of you know uh digging and talking to people in person and Mm -hmm. that kind of thing it's very easy now to think that you don't have to do that anymore it's easy to come to the conclusion i don't really have to interview people anymore because I can just go around and get a lot of quotes off the internet and that's as good as interviewing people. But the reality is it's not, it's not as good. And so ideally you want to try to create a balance between all of this easy information and the, the harder information. Well, let's do this. Let's, uh, let's shift gears a little bit and let's start getting into the concepts from this book because I, you know, I'll tell you when I finally sat down and read it, your work started to make sense to me in a way that was just profound. I thought, wow, you know, uh, this entire concept of, you know, so what I'd like to do is kind of walk through the frameworks of a more beautiful question, uh, and, you know, use your own story and examples that you've talked about and talk about how this could be implemented into people's lives, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, you, I mean, I can start at the beginning. You yeah. want me to sort of start with the beginning of the book? Absolutely. Structurally? Yeah. Absolutely. yeah I, I think, um, you know, what I, what I did, once I had that sort of epiphany that, you know, to me anyway, questioning is, is a, a root source of innovation, um, I then started to think about the fact that, okay, well, we don't really appreciate questioning that way, I don't think. Most people don't think of it that way. Mm-hmm. And most people kind of take it for granted, take the idea of asking questions and the importance of asking questions. We kind of just think of it as a given, you know, yeah, it's something people do. So what, you know? And um, so the with the book, the first thing I felt I had to do was lay out the argument of why questioning matters and why it's something that you probably don't appreciate as much as you you might or you should. And so that was where I kind of started with the book is just making that case, you know, why, why questioning? Why, why am I writing a book about questioning? And why should you as the reader care about questioning? And, and that, that took up sort of the first part of the book. And what I did there was I laid out my evidence, you know, I said, look at all of these innovations and there's, there's lots and lots of them in the book, you know, lots of stories about Mm -hmm. breakthroughs and innovations and I uh, traced them back to the original question in many cases that started, you know, the, the innovation started the, the path to that innovation. So that was part of the, 
you know, the, the case that I laid out um, was just saying, if you just look at the world around you and the innovations, you're going to find that a lot of them can be traced back to questioning. And, and that tells us why questioning is so important. And then I also talked about the fact that, you know, questioning is this tool that helps us learn. You know, it's it, when, when we are up against the unknown, mm. and that could be in our jobs or in our lives or, or anywhere, when we're dealing with the unknown, we need to be able to move forward and somehow figure out how to act, even though we don't know, the, know something. We're, we're sort of in the dark. And we need to figure out how do we move forward even though we're in the dark. And to me, the question is, is the, is the tool. It's the app, you know, if you will. Or you can think of it as the flashlight. You know, when we're, when we're facing the dark, the question is the flashlight. You know, it, it allows us to sort of focus on certain areas of the unknown and start to attack them with questions and say, okay, I don't understand what's going on. Let me start by asking, what about this? Mm-hmm. What about that? Why this? Why that? And so it's this really valuable tool that, that human beings have um, that allows them to uh, deal with uncertainty and, and the unknown. But as I also pointed out in that early section, um, we don't use it as much as we we might because we get a little um, – as we get older, and we start out asking tons of questions as kids – as we get older, we start to associate questioning with uh, oftentimes with weakness or with not knowing something we should know. Uh, it can be a source of embarrassment. It can be seen as challenging authority. You know, there are all these things associated with questioning that may cause us to hold back from asking a lot of questions. So uh, part of what I'm saying in that opening statement, if you will, is that this is a really important thing, but it's, it's underappreciated and it's underused and it's not taught in school. Mm-hmm. And it's this, you know, it's this tool that we're not, we're not making the most of. So, um, so that was kind of the, you know, the opening salvo of the book is to, is to just make that case and make people sit up and say, yeah, you know, this, this business about asking questions is actually really important. And, and maybe I'm not using this this tool as as well as I should be. Hmm. Let me ask you this: uh, You mentioned this idea of us starting, like us stopping this whole idea of asking questions. I remember very specifically in the book you you outlined the Louis C.K. comedy bit why the kid keeps asking why, and we get to you know why enough times to like shut up and eat your French fries. Right. Uh, I'm interested uh, how we start to break that conditioning in adult life if we've gotten to the point where we've stopped asking questions. Yeah, I think, you know, this is a really big, big um, area that I'm, I explored in the book and I'm continuing to explore. In fact, I'm gonna, this fall, I'm going to be doing a number of education uh, conferences, speaking at a number of them. And um, so it starts with education, right? It starts with school. Um, if, I think what's happening in, the, in our education system is that uh, questioning is, is being trained out of kids, uh, not necessarily intentionally but it's a byproduct of the system. The system only rewards uh, memorized answers. And you don't really get rewarded for asking good questions. In fact, you're often treated as if you are a distraction if you're asking questions. Uh, You're slowing things down. You know, we have so much material to cover. We don't have time for your questions. 
So, um, so there's a situation in our education system where it's not being questioned. The act of questioning is not being taught and it's not being um, encouraged or sometimes even tolerated. So that's the first thing that kind of needs to be addressed from a societal standpoint. I think we need to talk about, and people are talking about it. We need to talk about why we're not encouraging questioning more, why questioning is dropping so rapidly as kids go through school and, uh, and what we might be able to do within the classroom to make questioning a more comfortable, uh, welcome act among students. So, so that's part of it. Now, from an individual standpoint, you know, with all of us, I mean, we've already gone through the education process and, and, and maybe we've somewhat been conditioned already to ask questions, you know, less than we, we should. But I think it's very easy to reclaim that, um, that questioning habit. You know, you really just have to, um, you really just have to make the effort and you really have to, um, I think of questioning as being a, a thing you just have to commit to and say, I'm going to um, take the time to, to think about what I'm doing or what's going on around me in a way that, you know, encourages more, uh, more questioning, in a way that, that is more curious, in a way that is more um, uh, inquisitive about mm-hmm. things instead of just accepting things as they are. And, and that's really a habit that you can, you know, sort of instill in yourself or reinstill because you already had it when you were a kid. Uh, but you can sort of bring back that kind of questioning, um, that questioning habit pretty easily by just making the effort. And then the other thing you can do is, you know, you can work on getting better at questioning and, and, and questioning in a more, um, uh, results driven way. And that's one of the things I talk about in the book is that, you know, there's all different kinds of questions and some questions, um, seem to be more powerful than others. And, uh, so I think we not only want to encourage ourselves to ask more questions, but we want to think about asking questions that are open-ended and ambitious and that really, um, might actually lead to something big. So, you know, instead of just, you know, what am I going to have for breakfast today? You know, looking at why is my industry um, doing things a certain way, even though it doesn't seem like it's the best way to do it. Mm. And um, what approaches could be taken to bring about change within this, this industry or this sector or maybe it's something in my own community where I live, you know, I see a problem in my community instead of just accepting it as, Oh, well, that's just a problem that this community's had for a while. You know, I might say, well, what are the roots of this problem? Um, why hasn't anyone dealt with this before? What are the, what are the real issues here? Um, what are some different approaches that might be tried here that haven't been tried? And how would we start to do that? So I think you can condition yourself to do that kind of um, that kind of uh, I think of it as innovative questioning, you know, uh, questioning that that doesn't um, accept the assumptions, but that challenges the assumptions around us and then starts to attack the, the, the challenges of the problems with why, what if and how, mm-hmm. you know, really powerful, open ended 
questions. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So let's let's actually talk about this why, what, if, and how framework because to me, that was the most powerful part of the book. And I'd love to talk about how do you take that and implement it um, into life, into business, and, and into you know the questions that reveal a set of solutions that are actually actionable as opposed to just sort of sitting there reflecting, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea of why, what, if, how is uh, came out of studying um, a number of really good questioners and and the way they would use questioning to attack a problem and to solve a problem. And um, I won't, I, I'm not going to say it's a universal 
uh, system that everybody's using. Uh, I don't even think if you talk to most innovators that they would they would uh, necessarily say, "Oh yeah, I, I ask questions in a certain pattern." But if you if you look at them, they often do. There is often a pattern to to the kinds of questions that that innovators ask, and and I found the most prevalent pattern was uh, was that they would start with why questions, they would then proceed to what I think of as what if questions. And they would end up with how questions. And, and I'll, I'll explain the difference between those three types of questions. First of all, they're all open-ended questions. And, and, you know, just on a basic level, you know, open-ended versus a closed question is a closed question can be answered factually or yes or no. There's a, there's a definitive answer to a closed question. You know, uh, what time is the meeting or uh, have, have we done this or haven't we? You know, so um, those are closed questions. Uh, how much is it going to cost us? You know, that's a closed question. Open-ended questions that usually begin with, you know, why, what if, and, and how, they don't necessarily have a, uh, a, a single answer. They, they need to be explored. They're, they're much more uh, complex and ambitious questions. So for the, right from the outset, one of the differences in, in innovative questioners is they ask a lot of those kinds of questions, not just the factual yes or no questions, but those big open questions that take a lot of work to try to answer. So that's the starting point. Now, as far as why, what, if, and how, the reason they start, they may start with why questions at the beginning is because why questions are all about understanding a challenge that's in front of you. And I don't care if it's a challenge in your business or in your life, you know, but you, you need to start with why in terms of why is this a problem in the first place? Or why is this a challenge that I care about? And, uh, and why, um, why did this challenge or this problem develop? Um, and why haven't I solved it already? And, and you know, why, why is it important that, that I address it in some way? So the why questions help you kind of get your arms around a challenge or a problem. And it's really important to spend a lot of time on why, because if you go ahead and try to solve a problem without understanding the whys behind it, you know, you might be solving the wrong problem. <laughs> you know, might, you might be solving a problem that really doesn't, uh, is really not significant in your life or, or is really not going to be the, the answer that you need, you know. So I think you, you start with why to try to understand whatever the challenges that you're dealing with. Um, when you move to what if, well, this is kind of see, – see, the thing about why asking why questions is understanding is not enough. You have to start to take action mm-hmm. on a challenge or a problem. I mean you can go around and around and why questions forever. Um, but unless you start to do something proactive with your questions, you know, you'll be doing more um, philosophy than innovation, right? So there's a point where you have to start moving ahead on something. And, and to me, that is the, the what if – uh, uh, stage is where you begin to speculate about possible solutions to this challenge. I mean, you've, you've, you've asked your, all your whys. You kind of understand what the problem is. You've got a better sense of it, of why it's a problem and what the issues are. But you have to somehow start to get to the point of being proactive and saying, okay, what if, what if I, I tried this? Or what if we as a company did this? Or what if we as a society 
tried this other approach. So the what if stage is where you really start to bring your own creativity, your imagination, and and uh, your creative powers to bear on this issue through speculation. And it can be what if questions can be wild. I mean, they can just be, you know, what if we turn the whole thing upside down? You know, I mean, oftentimes the more and the more wild they are, the better. You know, you, you will find innovators when they're in that stage, that ideation stage, they are asking sometimes really out there questions about possible approaches or things to do. So it's a very critical stage of, of creativity and innovation. However, the final thing that you have to do to be successful as, as an innovator or, or, or a creator is um, you have to start to really take action on those speculative ideas that you may have come up with in the what-if stage. You have to start to say, you know, well, how am I going to actually take the first step of, of doing something different here? I have some good ideas. I've come up with a what-if what if possibility. What if, I, what if I do this? Uh, what if I combine A and B to try to solve this problem? Okay, what do I do next? And that's, to me, that's the how stage. Mm-hmm. The how stage of questioning is all about how do I do this? How do I make this idea real? How do I prototype it? How do I take the first step? How do I share it with other people? How do I get the resources I need to attack it? So to me, that's the very practical uh, stage of questioning where you actually implement you know, the, the ideas that you came up with in the what if stage and you see if they really work. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's the hard part. You know, when I, when I would cycle through these, um, innovations, uh, you know, whether it was the, the creation of the Polaroid camera or a lot of the, the new tech, uh, creations, uh, you know, like Airbnb or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, I would find that the how stage was the really hard stage for the, for the innovators. Um, you know, they started with a great why question, you know, why hasn't someone created a service like this before? They came up with a great what if, you know, well, what if you use the internet to do X, Y, Z, and therefore you could deliver this service. But then the how part was, you know, okay, how are we going to design this site? I mean, how are we going to deal with all the complications of creating an Airbnb uh, site on the internet? I mean, how are we going to deal with the multiple complications of, of people, you know, renting out uh, rooms on the internet. So the how stage is, is really hard. And that's the real, you know, nitty gritty stuff. And, and that's what separates the, the dreamers from the, from the doers, you know? So, um, but anyway, to me that, that cycle is really critical. And I think it's, it's um, something we can all apply. I mean, it's, we can apply it on an individual level when we're thinking about problems. We can just think about them in terms of, you know, why is this a problem? You know, uh, what if I think about some alternate ways of coming at this problem? And then how might I actually uh, get started on doing something? I think we can apply it to almost anything. You know, it's interesting when I hear you talk about this process, uh, you know, I remember reading the book and I started to think to myself, that was exactly how I came up with the concept for a conference because my question was, why are conferences so damn boring? And then I'm like, why are they held in hotel rooms? I'm like, why are they held in convention centers? Why are they so big? Why did they not lead to anything? And then my thought was, well, what if we, you know, uh, approached a conference like a theatrical performance instead? 
and made it, right. you know, it had all the elements from theater. And it was so interesting to hear it, you know, because I'd never seen it that way. Like, you know, I think when you're in it, you don't see it that way. Like, you don't no, realize you know, that's exactly it's, what you're it's going through. It's kind of a natural, the, the why, what, if, how, and I, I've done a lot of research on this. It, it actually mirrors a lot of uh, traditional creative thinking processes and, and building processes. It actually mirrors, um, I don't know how familiar you are, you are with design thinking. Mm-hmm. But it nicely mirrors the process of design thinking, which is, uh, you know, how designers solve problems. And the, the terms are different. They don't talk about why, what, if, and how, but they talk about, you know, uh, uh, prototyping and they talk about, uh, you know, framing a problem, which would be the, like the why. That's like the why stage, right, when you, when you do framing. So, so they have different names for the stages. But if you look at various creative stage uh, processes, uh, you will find a cycle that in some way is similar or matches up to why, what, if, and how. So what, really what I'm doing is taking kind of a natural human uh, problem-solving tendency, mm-hmm. a, a way that we go about solving problems, and I'm just putting it in the language of, of questioning and inquiry. Mm-hmm. And it kind of makes it simpler, I think, for people, because one of the, one of the issues I had with design thinking, and I, I studied design thinking for a while and wrote about it, was I found it was um, it was it had a lot of design terminology, and it was kind of off-putting to people who weren't uh, designers, and sometimes mm-hmm. even it was off-putting to designers. But um, so I found that when you talk about this kind of cycle of of innovation in much more accessible language, which is really just about asking questions and asking the right questions, all of us get that. All of us can can do that it kind of makes it more, um, it makes it a little simpler and a little more accessible. Mm. You know, it, it, one of the things that's really interesting to me is what I looked at when I saw this is like, wow, I could be really deliberate about using this process as opposed yeah. to doing it sort of unknowingly and unconsciously. Yeah. And, and, and it, it's what's, what's important. What's good about the process is it gives you some sense of order uh-huh. because a lot of times with, with problem solving, you don't know where to begin. Yeah. And so just having a sense of, okay, why don't I begin with why, you know, um, it's a really good, uh, uh, just sort of a roadmap. And, and what I've found too, is that, uh, the order is so important because, um, in the business world today, a lot of times there's a tendency to start with how, and it, it's just something about the nature of business and the nature of, of people who think of themselves as problem solvers um, a lot of times they want to solve the problem right away and they're impatient to solve the problem and they go to how right away. That's the first step. The first thing I say is how are we going to solve this problem? How are we going to fix this? And so they're thinking about how right, right out of the gate. And, um, you know, I, I found that that's not a good way to go because what happens there is you're, you're, you're not spending enough time on the, earlier kinds of questions that help you understand the problem in the first place and help they help you understand if it's the right problem for you um they help you do all of this stuff that sets the stage for the how part you know but by the time you get to how you should understand this problem really well and you should know that you're you're solving the right problem it's but if you don't ask those earlier questions you will oftentimes uh, be focused on how are we going to solve problem X when in fact you shouldn't be solving problem X. That's the wrong problem. It's the wrong question. 
you should be doing something different. So that's why the order is so important. Hmm. So you, you mentioned Airbnb, and what I'd like to do is look at a couple more practical examples um, and you know talk about how you've seen this play out in people's lives and people's work. Yeah, um, well, tons of examples in the book. Um, the one I, I really love to talk about is uh, the Polaroid instant camera. It's just one of my favorite stories because mm-hmm. it's a great questioning story, and it involves a small child. And I love that because you know, question children are, are the best questioners, right? They're, they're, they're amazing questioners. A four-year-old girl is is has been shown to be the ultimate questioning uh, machine. You know, a four-year-old girl asks more questions than anybody else. Uh-huh. So, so in the Polaroid story. It was a, uh, a girl who was actually not even four yet. She was three going on four. Um, and she was the daughter of Edwin Land, the founder of Polaroid. Uh, but he hadn't yet invented the Polaroid uh, camera. He, was, he had a business. He, it was an optical uh, uh, technology business. But he wasn't really in the camera business yet. And um, he was actually, his company was actually um, going through some difficulty. And uh, he went, went on vacation took his four-year-old uh, daughter with him and um, was out. This is the early 1940s. He was out uh, walking around with her and took a photograph of her with a standard camera at the time. And uh, and then he just takes the picture and starts walking away. And she wants to see the results of the, of the photograph. And he has to explain to her, well, you know, the way it works with a camera is I take your picture and then I have to send the film somewhere and, and in a few days, we'll we'll get pictures back, and then you'll see the picture. And she was kept asking him, "Why do we have to wait for the picture?" So Edwin Land, um, you know, this question got into his head. So that was the why question that started it all. And um, and he thought about that. You know, instead of just dismissing it the way a lot of people might, you know, dismiss that kind of a question from a four year old. They might say, oh, well, just that's because the way that's the way it is. That's just the way it is. Well, Edwin Land didn't do that. I mean, he he started to think about that question and started to think, you know, well, why do we accept this as a, as the reality? What why why hasn't someone come up with a, a a better way to do this? And what's stopping it? What's in the way? So uh, he started thinking about that, and then he he proceeded very quickly to. Um, imagining uh, uh, what-if possibilities. And the, 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 the most significant what-if question that he had in his head was, was um, basically the idea of what if you could take a dark room and somehow have it inside the camera? You know, I mean, that was what he was trying to, that was the what-if possibility that he was really thinking about. You know, what if all those things that happened outside in a dark room happened inside the camera. And, um, and then he had to, you know, deal with how, I mean, you know, how, how on earth could you combine a dark room and a camera? I mean, how could you fit a dark room inside a camera? It seems almost, you know, unfathomable to think of that. So he had to spend several years on that, on the how part of that question. How do you, how do you bring those chemicals into the camera? How do you get the paper into the camera? How do you, have that whole process happen inside that little box. And, and that took, you know, as I say, several years. Uh, but then, you know, um, in 1948, you know, about five years after the, the little girl asked the question, 
you know, he unveils the the first instant camera, the Polaroid instant camera, and basically, you know, it changed the world. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of people say that the Polaroid and uh, and Edwin Land uh, inspired Steve Jobs later on, and you know, Polaroid was was one of the first companies that showed us that what was possible with technology creating this kind of instant um, uh, gratification for people, you know, uh, which we see so much of driving our technology uh, world today. But uh, but anyway, you know, I, I, that story I think shows nicely illustrates kind of the cycle that that. Edward Land went through as he was as he was envisioning that and inventing that, and I think uh, you know I saw that at a similar kind of process or similar kind of questions being asked at uh, you know companies like uh, Nest, uh, the thermostat uh, company, and Square, you know the credit card reader, uh, starting with the why and then proceeding from there, and it's it's a very very interesting um, uh, a cycle, and and it doesn't just have to involve an individual, you know inventor it's a it's a cycle that i that organizations can can work through as well you know they can start with it, it could involve the anything from an invention of a product to the mission of the company you know i mean uh, maybe a company needs to really step back and ask why are we doing what we're doing in terms of our mission and then you start to realize some things that you're not doing right. And that leads to your, what if, you know, well, what if we did a better job of connecting this with that? And that eventually that's going to take you to your big, how, um, how question, uh, that's going to, that's going to lead you forward. Um, and speaking of how questions, uh, I just want to throw out there something very important when you're asking how questions, um, it's really powerful to follow how with the word might, how might, um, Google is using that uh, wording a lot. So when, when they're trying to answer um, big issues and big problems, they're asking, how might we do this? How might we do X? How might we solve the problem of Y? Um, it's just a very powerful way to word your, your, how, uh, your how questions, especially when you're in a group, when you're doing collaborative uh, inquiry. Uh, Use use that phrase. How might we? Very very mm. powerful. Awesome. So, uh, one last question before we wrap things up: Where do people get tripped up in this process? Like, where where do they get stuck? Well, I think they can get stuck in. Um, oftentimes, they they don't ask the questions to begin with. I mean, there's no questioning to begin with. So so a lot of times they get stuck at zero. You know, uh, and and that can be because they're they don't have time. You know. Um, you know, there's a great George Carlin line, you know, the, about, uh, you know, some people ask why and other people ask, you know, why not? And and the rest of us are too busy you know, to ask anything at all. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a, it's a, it's true. You know, we, we, we're we're very focused in our day to day lives and jobs with just getting stuff done and just going on the path we're already on and just being as efficient as possible. And uh I think that the first challenge, the first stopping point is there. It's just finding enough time to be able to step back. I think of questioning as uh, questioning as a process where you usually have to step back. You have to step back from what you're already doing. You have to step back from assumptions. You have to step back from the routine. And you have to kind of look at things in a detached way 
and slow down. And, and that enables you to ask, you know, gee, why, why am I doing this? You know, what, what, what are the real issues here? What's really going on? Mm-hmm. And uh, that is the, the, the first challenge is to find the time and the, and the place and the ability to step back and ask those kinds of questions about whatever it is you're doing. Uh, after that, I think the next big stopping point is moving forward, making sure you're always moving forward. Um, as I said, you can get caught up in why questions forever, and you can go round and round and, and feel like you're chasing your tail, right? So it's really important with questioning to say, I'm not only going to ask why, but once I've got hold of a good challenge or a good question, I'm going to make sure I keep me moving forward on it. So once I've asked my why questions, I'm going to start coming up with ideas. I'm going to ask what if, and then I'm not going to stop at what if. I'm not going to stop at speculations and, gee, wouldn't it be great if we could do this or that? I'm going to move forward, and I'm going to say how. How do you do it? How do you take the first tiny step? And um, and I think that's that's the second key thing with questioning is just to make sure you have forward momentum and that you are acting on your questions instead of just raising them and, and letting them, you know, uh, fly off into the atmosphere. Mm. Well, Warren, this has been really interesting and, uh, really, really useful. Like I, like I said, I mean, I was, I was blown away by the, how insightful this book was and, and how many ideas it opened up for me. So I want to wrap with, uh, my final question, which is how we close all our interviews at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh, you know, I think I think what it is that makes somebody something unmistakable is is having a a, a clear vision, a clear point of view. You know, I think that's uh, you know, as as a writer, um, you know, that's what I'm always striving for in in my work. I, you know, I wanted to say something that nobody else has said, mm. uh, or to say it in a in a way that no one else has quite said it before, and uh, and I think that's what we're all striving for. Um, and it doesn't matter whether we are. You know, whether we're innovators trying to solve a problem or, or whatever it is, you know, we we basically have to, you know, we have to try to figure out how are we going to put our own distinct uh, imprint on what it is we're doing? How are we going to make it unique to to us and to our vision and, uh, and, and to what we believe? And if we can do that, then it will be it will be unique. And it will be therefore be uh, unmistakable. Awesome. Well, Warren, this has been great. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share some of your story and your insights with our listeners. Well, I, I'm really glad to be here. And it's, it, it was, uh, it was a, a wonderful conversation and, uh, and I enjoyed it very much. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming. Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.